You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, we are starting today a topical sermon series. That means that we've got a series of messages arranged around a particular topic. This is not the norm for us here at CBC. People have asked me, brother, do you like topical sermon series? And my answer is not at all, actually. I much, much prefer to be preaching sequentially through books of scripture. And that is the steady diet of our church. Yet, periodically, when the elders are in agreement that a topical series could be of use, and we're in agreement on what that topic would be, these arise. And so, we start today a seven-sermon series on the church. And the subtitle of that series is God's Plan for Your Life. It is his church. Just a few words at the outset of the series here. It's not meant to be teaching on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. That's not the goal. This sermon series will not be an exhaustive treatment on what characterizes a healthy church either. The goal of this series is to help us to see the good and kind design of God in the church to help us see the wisdom of God in giving us, his people, the church. And maybe above those is to help cultivate our love for the church, for one another, and to help us see and feel our need of the church. If we accomplish those things over the next seven weeks, it will be a great success. I would illustrate at least my hope, kind of the ethos of this sermon series with this. I'm speaking personally as a dad of four. There are many of you in the room who are parents as well. One day, should the Lord tarry, and my children are leaving our home, heading off to whether it's further schooling or taking a job somewhere, and someone were to ask one of them, why do you need the church? I hope that the response of my children would be, I don't even know that I understand your question because I don't know how I would live without the church. May that be how we all feel. May that be what we all think. Today, we're considering preaching. The most important thing and you guys know I don't love talking in superlatives, but the most important thing about a local church is its message. The most important thing about a church is its message. And by that, I don't mean any particular Sunday morning sermon. By that, I mean the message that is regularly communicated. The message that shapes the identity and the culture of the church. The message that establishes the resting heart rate of a congregation. That's what we mean. 
the preaching of God's word is what will drive that message. Preaching drives that message along with the doctrine to which a church holds. So it's intentional. If you've looked in your bulletin or you've seen it in the e-newsletter, the first two sermons in this series on the church are just that, preaching and sound doctrine. Those two things shape and drive the identity and the culture of a church. Countless times, I heard Mark Dever, who was, was and is a mentor to me in the faith, recount the story of candidating to, to be the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. And he would say to many different audiences over the years, during that process, I made it plain to the saints who were a part of Capitol Hill Baptist Church that I would be content if every aspect of my public pastoral ministry failed, save the preaching of God's word. And that's a strong assertion. I'd be content if every aspect of my public pastoral ministry fails, save the preaching of God's word. But that's right. The right preaching of the word of God is that important because it drives everything else in the life of the church. And if we don't rightly divide the word, I hope you feel this. If we don't rightly divide the word, then anything else that we do get right in the church is an accident. We're just fortunate. Now, certainly, you guys know this. We rejoice in this, that God saves his people and accomplishes all of his work in spite of us and even through our failures and our fits and our starts. Amen. And at the same time, in as much as it depends upon us, we strive to faithfully preach the word. So my plan for us this morning is to preach this sermon in five points. The first one will be shockingly brief. The third one will be shockingly long, just to let you know. Five points. Point one. God's word has always made God's people. God's word has always made God's people. Any message on the importance of preaching, the message preached, the preached word that doesn't begin here, suboptimal. God's word is this powerful. He spoke all things into existence, right? He spoke and there was. We can trace this through scripture, the power of God's word. Not only at the creation, but the promise of a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The call to a man named Abram, where God called him out of paganism and established a people called Israel. And then there was the good news that God spoke to Abraham. 
the gospel was preached to him. And then we come to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the divine word of God incarnate. And it is through the preaching of that word, the divine word, the preaching of that word brings God's people to faith, makes God's people, unites them to Christ, and results in our eternal salvation. You're here today. I'm here today because this is true, that God's word makes his people. Praise be to his name. Point two. I want to consider the biblical pattern of preaching. Point two, the biblical pattern of preaching. If we survey the scriptures, we will observe that throughout it, we find a human being standing before the people, proclaiming God's message to them. Repeatedly, through scripture, this pattern manifests. A human being standing before other human beings, a congregation, and proclaiming God's message to them. We see this with Moses repeatedly. We see this in numerous instances with the prophets. In Nehemiah chapter 8, you may recall how after the southern kingdom of Judah comes back from Babylonian captivity, and they're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding the wall. You remember how the people ask Ezra, who is a scribe, they ask him to bring them the book of the law. A platform is built for the occasion. And then Ezra and a number of other scribes, pretty much all day, stand on the platform, read the law of God, and expound it. Quite literally, they give the sense of it to the people. They help the people know what it means. Then there's Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You're familiar with this account. The Holy Spirit has fallen. People are speaking in tongues. There were tongues of fire that came and rested on people, and they're speaking in other languages. It's quite a scene. People don't know what to make of it. Some in the, the crowd are like, hey, is, are these people drunk? And Peter says, no, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. You've got to love those little human details, right? Let me tell you what's really going on. And then he commences to preach. And what does he do? He connects the entire Old Testament to Christ. He demonstrates how everything that the law and the prophets have testified has come to fulfillment and fruition in this man named Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter proclaims how the resurrection of Jesus vindicates him and proves that he is the Messiah. And the people are cut to the heart. Then there's Paul in Antioch, recounted in Acts chapter 13, where he, 
does effectively the same thing that Peter did at Pentecost. Shockingly similar message. Again, connecting the law and the prophets to Jesus. Heralding the resurrection. Demonstrating both of them. Demonstrating how Jesus is greater than David. Who had penned Psalm 16. And then Paul says, he proclaims to his hearers that through Jesus, we are set free from everything from which we could not be set free by the law of Moses. And then there is the charge of Paul to Timothy that we read earlier, familiar to many. Paul to young Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus. Preach the word is the exhortation. Do it in season, do it out of season. Always give yourself to the preaching of the word. That's because through the foolishness of what we call preaching, God saves and shapes and fashions and makes his people. Through the folly of the preaching of the cross, God brings people from death to life. He does that with a message that comes from the lips of broken vessels, crooked sticks, and the Lord draws straight lines of redemption. God's people are saved and sanctified and kept through the preaching of God's word. Which brings us to point three. Now that we've considered the power of God's word, how it's always made his people, and how there's a pattern, biblically, for what we're doing right now. A fallen human being, a broken vessel standing before other perishing sinners to preach the word of God. Let's consider point three, preaching and the plan of God. Now, what I mean by that is preaching in God's plan to save a people. We're going to think about this together. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, you could make note of that passage if you would like. We're going to be coming back to it over and over again, undoubtedly, in this series. It's a well-known passage, right, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give various answers that people are, here's what the people are saying. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. And Jesus exclaims to him, you are blessed, Simon. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, right? But my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. You are Peter, right? Means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he says. That what you bind on earth is bound in heaven and what you loose or set free on earth is set free in heaven. Well, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, saints, are wrapped up in forgiveness of sins, absolution of guilt, and righteousness in Jesus' name. And that is accomplished through the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right practice of discipline. We're going to come back to that over and over again in this series. The keys of the kingdom of heaven 
forgiveness, absolution, righteousness in Christ through the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right practice of discipline. Let's talk about right preaching, though. It's our topic for today. Right preaching of the word of God means to rightly divide it. We need to rightly divide the word, explain what it means, apply it appropriately. The right preaching of the word of God has to include God's two words of law and gospel. Martin Luther said, he is a doctor of theology who can rightly divide law and gospel. Briefly on law, we're going to come back. Just Here's a trailer and a teaser for next week. We are going to think in great depth next week about the law in its various uses as a piece of our consideration of sound doctrine. So I will not have time today to say much about it. Come back next week to hear more about how the good and holy and righteous law of God is used in the lives of human beings like you and me. The right preaching contains, the right preaching of the word must include law and gospel. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there is a bad way to use the law, and there's a right lawful way to use the law. Why did God give the law is the question. Why? There are several answers that we can give. The first reason that God gave the law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ who kept it for us. The first and greatest use of the law, to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ who kept it for us. This is the law used as a mirror where we stand in front of it and we assess our lives in light of it and we see how far short we fall and we are appropriately undone. The law used this way is meant to cause human beings to despair of our own righteousness. That's important. Also understand, in thinking about this first use, the moral law of God is a reflection of God's own character. Amen? It is a reflection of his own character. So in considering the law in its perfect standard, we see something of the holiness of God. And in seeing his holiness, we then conclude that we are not. That's appropriate. As John Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, we do not rightly know ourselves without first having ascended to consider and behold the face of God. And then coming down from that, we can then view ourselves rightly. Amen. That's, that's that first use of the law. More on that even next week. Secondly, why did God give the law? This needs to be included in our preaching. It is to restrain human corruption. To restrain human corruption. Put simply, in the law, God commands what is good. And he prohibits what's evil. We speak accordingly. These things are good because the Lord has said they're good. 
These things are evil because the Lord has said they're evil. Thirdly, God gave us the law to guide our living in Christ Jesus. This is specifically to the saints in Christ. Though we are no longer under the law to be condemned or justified by it, the law is our perfect guide for living. It is our perfect guide for life in Christ. In this third use of the law, again, considered it much more depth next week. This is effectively what we're doing. We as Christians, we say, we know, based upon the testimony of God, we have been justified. We've been forgiven. We've been absolved. That said, how do we then live? How do we know what righteousness looks like? We look to the law. How do we know what evil looks like? We look to the law. How do we know what's good for us? How do we know what's good for our neighbor? How do we know what would honor God and commend Christ? We look to the law. Much more treatment of that again coming next Sunday, should the Lord give it to us. But the right preaching of the word must include not only law, but gospel. So let's talk about the gospel. And maybe not so much just talk about it. Let's, let's hear it. Let's consider it. Let's sit under it. Amen? To preach the gospel is to preach a person. It's to preach the message of Jesus of Nazareth. It's to preach him. To preach the gospel is to preach Jesus for us. Those three words are intentional. Christ for us. In our place. As our representative. As our substitute. As our savior. As our redeemer. To preach the gospel is to preach Christ, who he is. He is God the Son, who has always existed, along with the Father and the Spirit. And God the Son, from before the foundations of the world, it was determined that he would take on flesh and become a human being. Truly God, truly man. We preach that. Takes your breath away. That God in his wisdom and his love and his righteousness and his mercy determined that God the Son would become a man before he even made humans in the first place. And that God the Son would become a man in order to save men. We preach Jesus and who he is, the one by whom through whom and for whom all things were made. He's the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, the great enemy of God's people. He's the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, promised in the law and the prophets. He's the promised Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. He is the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the greater Israel. 
He's the second and better Adam who succeeded in every way that the first Adam failed. Everything that we lost in Adam, we have gained in Jesus. Only the righteousness that Jesus gives us is invincible, unshakable. Jesus is, beloved, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. The bright morning star, the righteous one. That's Jesus. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who is with us. But to preach the gospel is also to preach Christ and what he did and what he has thereby secured for us. As we've said before, the gospel contains nothing in it whatsoever that we do. It is the message of what Christ alone has done. He has made satisfaction for sins. You understand what that means? That means that all of the righteous judgment our sins deserve, all of the righteous wrath of God that our sins deserve, all of the curse that we should bear, all of that harrowing stuff has been absorbed and satisfied. The cup of God's wrath has been drained to the dregs in your place by your Redeemer. And there is no reason left to be afraid. Your judgment, believer, has already happened. It happened on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There is no reason to fear the day that we will stand before him. The one who died for us is the one who will be our judge. The one who satisfied God's wrath is the one who will execute God's justice. He has made satisfaction for sins. He has endured the law's curse in the place of all of his people. But he did more than that. God's law is the greatest standard of righteousness that the world has ever known. A standard of righteousness that is spiritual. And Jesus came as a human being to fulfill all righteousness. It's critical that Christ became a human to die for men, but it's also critical that God the Son became a human to be our righteousness. His righteousness as a human being is counted to everyone who trusts in him. His obedience is our obedience. His record is our record. It is as though we've been as perfectly obedient as he was. We preach satisfaction for sins. We preach fulfillment of the law and righteousness in Christ. But as we often confess, even once he had lived and died, he descends into hell, not to suffer more, to conquer, to bind the strong man who is the devil and set God's people free. And he rose triumphant on the third day, vindicated. Everything that he had done was sufficient. He rose victorious 
over sin and death and hell. Because the children partake in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things so that he through death might conquer the devil who has the power of death and so that he might set God's people free who have been living in lifelong slavery, fear of the grave. That's over. It's what he did. He appeared to many over 40 days. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He reigns and he intercedes for the saints. He is the great high priest of his people. The one mediator between God and man. He desires that all of his own would be with him where he is to behold his glory forever. And he sits and he intercedes and he pleads and he prays for you. To preach the gospel is to freely offer him. Thomas Boston one of my favorite Puritans, maybe my favorite, said that he understood the offer of the gospel to be summarized beautifully in Isaiah 55, 1. And of course, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. That when we preach Christ, we hold him out in this way. Come, everyone who thirsts. You thirst for life and righteousness, and freedom, and absolution, and forgiveness. You thirst. Come. You got no money. You got no merit. Come. Buy and eat without money and without price. Come. Those who are weary and heavy laden, come to the Savior. And he will give you rest for your soul. To preach the gospel is to hold him out that way. To preach the gospel is to hold him out to the people who have gathered on any given Lord's Day. And to, as we herald him, who he is, what he's done, his posture toward his own. He said, beloved, behold him. See him. Consider him. Marvel at him. Adore him. Cast yourself at his feet. Cast yourself in his arms that are ready to receive you. Take refuge in him. Turn. From yourself. Turn from your sin. Turn from your shame and your guilt. Turn from all the merit that you think you might have and cast yourself upon Christ in faith. To preach the gospel is to hold Christ out for the encouragement and comfort and strengthening of the souls of the redeemed as well as to see those who have not yet trust him come to faith. Both are necessary. For the redeemed, 
We can't hear it enough. The sufficiency of his work in our place, his power, his grace, his mercy, his love. Saints, he knows you. He loves you. He is for you. And he is with you. There's an old word. The word is tincture. Some of you have heard of it. One of the ways it's used is medicinally. You know, you take a little bit of medicine and you put it in a solution. That's tincture. But another way that it's used is to describe something that tints or colors or flavors everything that it's in. Tincture. It's a good word. Our goal here as the pastors of this church is the goal that others have had before us. And that is simply this, that the tincture of our preaching would be Christ. Christ for us. May it be. This is not a new idea. This is a biblical principle. We take this from God's own word. Says Paul, we preach Christ crucified. May it be. I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. May it be. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. May it be. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then there's Colossians 1. Right? We seek to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you. Him we proclaim. And there's the words of the Savior himself. Not only come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, but all who come to me, he says, I'll never cast you out. That's a comforting word. Whoever comes to me, all that the Father gives to me will come. And whoever comes, I will never cast you out. What a Savior. His words to us, don't be afraid. Believe in God and believe also in me. I am the good shepherd, he says. When evil comes knocking, when the darts of the evil one come flying, when wolves come, I won't run away. I'll lay my life down. Nobody can take you from my hand. And even in the face of the last and greatest enemy, death itself, he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who lives and believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And I am with you always. May that always be the tincture of the preaching here. You see, there's always a tendency to drift. Even amongst serious-minded folk, there's always a tendency to drift 
from the preaching of Christ than to become enamored with something else. A tendency to drift away from the preaching of the gospel and to become enamored with eloquent discourses on any number of topics, including Christian living. This has happened repeatedly through the history of the church. And to make this hit a little closer to home, you might be saying, brother, I mean, okay, but like, we're, dare I say it, we're reformed here. We're confessional. Being reformed or being confessional, ascribing to a confession of faith that's historical, all that, none of that makes a church immune to this kind of drift. Exhibit A is the Church of Scotland in the 18th century. Track with me just a moment. I trust you'll see why I'm bringing this to your attention. The Church of Scotland in the 18th century is a Presbyterian, Reformed church subscribing to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet, a very prominent minister of that era, speaking on behalf of the majority of ministers, had this to say about preaching. Quote, keep close in view the great end for which a preacher mounts the pulpit. That is to infuse good dispositions into his hearers, to persuade them to serve God, and to become better men. Let this always dwell on his mind when he is composing, and it will diffuse through his compositions that spirit which will render them at once esteemed and useful. Close quote. To infuse good dispositions in our hearers, to persuade them to serve God, and to make them better people. That's the great purpose for which a preacher gets in the pulpit. And this should always be on the preacher's mind when he prepares a sermon so that his sermons will be esteemed and useful. Well, that kind of gospelless, Christless preaching was so prominent in the Church of Scotland in the 18th century that the General Assembly had to pass in the year 1736 an act concerning preaching that contained these words at the very end of the paragraph. Preachers, this is, the ministers had to be told to do this. Preachers are to make it the great scope of their sermons to lead sinners from a covenant of works to a covenant of grace for salvation. Not do this and live, but Christ has done it. And they must make it the great scope of their sermons to lead sinners from sin and self to precious Christ. Close quote. The fact that ministers of the gospel had to be told to do that is astonishing. A man named John Brown of Whitburn, who himself would later become a minister, wrote of the effect of sitting under this kind of preaching. He said, I thought that I certainly was on the way to heaven because my minister regularly preached obedience to me. But he also told me that I must forsake sin in order to be pardoned. That I, a poor sinner, should not look to God for mercy until I had done that work in my heart that I must be able to tell God of my forsaking of sin before I could expect pardon from him. 
I learned little from my minister about how Christ gives and maintains spiritual life or about the necessity of his imputed righteousness. And I only got confused notions of the doctrine of faith in Christ and then the life of faith. I leaned into my effort at transformation and my good works, and it ruined me. Even though my minister did not expressly tell me to lean into these things, the emphasis of his doctrine led me to that way of thinking. I ended up putting my effort and good works in the place of Christ. The reason I bring this up is that you don't have to be a false teacher. You don't have to be heterodox. You don't have to say anything patently false in order to inculcate that kind of thinking in a congregation. It's as natural as breathing for us to think this. Notice how John Brown said, it was the strain, it was the emphasis of my minister's doctrine that led me to think that I had to do something in order to have God's mercy. Beloved, we preach Christ. This is why there is the unswerving commitment to the preaching of the gospel. That was all under point three. Point four and five will be brief. Point four, track with me for a few more minutes. Point four is the corporate experience of the preached word. The corporate experience of the preached word. So you realize that when we gather like this on the Lord's day, we collectively engage with the word of God. This is a very special thing we're doing. Think about it. The preacher, regardless of who it is, the preacher called by the congregation, set apart for the work of preaching, has given himself to study and meditation and prayer. This preacher, by the way, lives with the people. He lives amongst them. He knows them. They know him. This is why, regardless of any way this church would ever conceivably grow, we will never be piping sermons on a screen somewhere. Because living, breathing preachers, living with the people, is God's design. And here's the thing, not only has he been giving himself to this work, living amongst the people, the people pray for him. And with all of that, we gather. And the Lord is with us. And the power of the Holy Spirit accompanies the preaching of the word. The Spirit of God illumines the word. The Spirit of God digs out ears, opens eyes, writes the truth on our heart. He opens our minds to understand the Scriptures and causes our hearts to burn as they're open for us. This corporate experience, beloved, is unique, and it is the kindness of God. Here, we, preacher included, sit under the Word. We, we submit ourselves to it. I'm with you, you're with me in submitting ourselves to the word of God. That's a good thing. As those who have been united to Jesus and to one another, 
we experience the word of God together. We listen together. I don't just, I don't just listen for me in light of me. I listen for me in light of us. I listen for us. And the Lord speaks. We experience the presence of Christ together in the preaching of his word, and he ministers to us. Now, brother, does what you're saying mean that my personal study of the Bible is insignificant? Not at all. Please don't ever draw that conclusion. Just because the corporate is the primary thing does not ever mean that our personal engagement with the word of God is immaterial. Actually, the right preaching of the word in this setting helps and aids our personal study of the scripture. You tracking? Yeah. It undergirds it. This undergirds our personal study of scripture. It propels us in it. How so? Well, I'll offer a few thoughts. We learn how to read our Bibles here. We do. So that it's not just me opening up the Bible, drawing all kinds of whack conclusions. We learn how to read the scriptures here. We learn how all of scripture is a testimony of Christ. We learn how Jesus has accomplished God's eternal plan of redemption of which we are a part. We learn how the Bible hangs together. We learn the law and the gospel. We are able then to better understand the scriptures in our own personal study. We, as we are part of a church that preaches the word rightly over the course of time, we find ourselves able to kind of parachute into any text in scripture and I can get my bearings. I can find north, south, east, and west. And I'm going to have a general feel for what's going on here and how I should read this text. That's valuable. And we're protected from a whole host of errors. The public preaching of the word helps and guides us in our personal devotion. Both are important. But the corporate is what aids the personal. I should say the corporate aids the private because even the corporate is personal. I trust you understand what I'm saying. Point five. This is kind of the kitchen sink. We could just call it that. But... I put a header, further considerations regarding the preaching of the word here. Further considerations of the preaching of the word here. I have three very brief considerations to conclude our time. The first consideration is the priority of preaching or the primacy of preaching at CBC. Do you realize that the bulk of our preaching here is done by our pastoral staff? That means the pastoral staff being myself, and Mackenzie Dinkins. One of the main reasons this is the case is so that the man who is preaching can give a significant sum of hours to preparation because it is, we are paid to do this. And when the elders who are not on the staff, Rob Mutilva, Jason Barter, when they preach, we aim to be well out in front of those preaching opportunities for those brothers so that they have adequate time to devote to preparation. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Realize this. What I'm saying, the, the priority and the primacy of preaching 
we put our money where our mouth is here in that we value it enough that we think it's right and necessary that guys give sufficient, significant time to prep because of this reality. When the word of God is preached in this assembly, the entire congregation is being discipled. You realize that? When the word is preached here, the entire church is being discipled. It is an investment. The hours that go into sermon preparation are an investment in every member of Covenant Baptist Church and in every household represented in an assembly like this. That's significant. That's one observation. Second observation, consideration of preaching here, is pertaining to our posture toward the preaching of the word as members of CBC. What's our posture as members toward the preaching of the word? So taken from our catechism on what the fourth commandment means, inspired by Martin Luther's shorter catechism, we read this. You know, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? Part of what that means is this. We should fear and love God, and so we should not despise his word or the preaching of the same, but deem it holy and gladly hear and learn it. So good question for us always to be asking ourselves is do we rightly value not only the Lord's day, but even specifically the preaching of the word? Are we thoughtful in our approach to it? We, members of the church, do we, in ordinary and common sense ways, prepare ourselves for the preaching of the word? Do we get in bed on Saturday night? so that we're not just struggling through the service the next morning or scrambling to get here? Do we utilize the, the preaching calendar that's published in many places, most notably in the bulletin and the e-newsletter? You'll always know what text is being preached the coming Sunday. You can read it, engage with it, read it to your kids, talk about it, prepare ourselves to hear the preaching of God's word. Do we in the aftermath of the sermon, reflect on what we've heard. And by that, I don't mean that we're doing like sermon review and critique. I mean, what's the Lord teaching us? What's the Lord teaching us through the preaching of his word on Sunday? Do we reflect on that together? Do we engage in conversations even during the week with one another over that? What are you learning from what we're doing on the Lord's day? What are you learning as we make our way through this? Or I was struck by this. How were you affected by that? Are we seeking to grow in these ways together? Or is it possible that I am functioning like a rugged individual? I just kind of show up on Sunday the same place as these other people and then just sort of go about the rest of my life. Good questions to ponder. Third consideration. This is what we come to hear. What is it that we come to hear primarily? So in the word of God, we find insight, we find wisdom, we find instruction, we find warning, we find correction, we find law. All of those are wonderful things. They're really good things. And the reason that I've even said some of the things that I've said today, and the reason we preach as we do, is that all of those things are of use salvifically and redemptively and for the glory of God 
only in and through Jesus Christ and the preaching of him. So all of the wisdom and insight and instruction and warning and law for the saints is understood and seen through the lens of Jesus Christ and our union with him. So we first and foremost come every Sunday to hear of the Savior, to hear of his love and power and grace and mercy, because we know that this is the lifeblood of the Christian life. Nehemiah 8, I referenced it earlier. They asked that the book of the law be brought. It's a sweet image, man. The people are asking the clergy, as it were, bring us the book, right? May it be that way here. Bring us the book and give us Christ, right? Bring us the book and tell us about the Savior, bro. That's why we're here. We are concluding, just so you know, to set your minds at ease. I want to read you a quote from John Calvin that years ago became very impactful to me as a preacher. This is in his commentary on 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, where John writes that everything that he's written in the letter, he wrote so that they would know that they're gods, right? Calvin says, the use of doctrine is not only to initiate the ignorant of the knowledge of Christ, but also to confirm those more and more who have already been taught. It therefore becomes us to attend to the duty of learning that our faith may increase through the whole course of our life. For there are still in us many remnants of unbelief, and so weak is our faith. That's very true. But we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed by having the office and power of Christ explained to us. For the apostle says that he wrote these things, that is, that eternal life is to be sought nowhere else but in Christ, in order that they who were believers already might believe all the more. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else, close quote. That last sentence in particular, it is the duty, therefore, of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith, to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ, so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else, became a guiding principle for me as a preacher. Christ for us. The grace, the power, the mercy, the love of Jesus. He is our salvation. And in him, beloved, we live the Christian life. Much more on all of that next week. If the Lord has not returned, I look forward to seeing you then. Now, may I bless us with this from God's word. May the Father grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.